Thanks for having me back. It's always good to see you again. I was here, I think it was this last January, talking about God's winter promises. And way back in the 1980s, you called me to serve this church. But it wasn't time yet, so I stayed in Byron Center and then moved on to other places, and here I am again. Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2? One of the more difficult books of the Bible. It's all about people who were thinking that there might be a better alternative than the Christian faith. They were thinking about going back to their old Jewish faith, and so the writer is concerned to say, don't even think about it because Jesus is better. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Here at the beginning, the argument begins, and uh, I'd like to start reading with the end of verse 8 and read through the end of that second chapter, Hebrews 2, 8b through the end. We're going to focus on verses 14 and 15. In putting everything under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. You want to listen for those words at the very end of the sermon. And now here's the text. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All of that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder how many of you remember the old story of the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. Remember it? Some kids remember it. I don't, didn't know that people still told their kids this awful story, but it's the one about the three little pigs who were scared of the big bad wolf, so they all built houses to be safe. The first one was in a hurry, so he built his house of straw, thought he was safe. The big bad wolf came along, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew the house down and gobbled up the first little pig. Second little pig watched that happening and said, I'm going to build a better house. He used sticks and thought, I'm safe now. And the big bad wolf came along and he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down and gobbled up the second little pig. The third little pig watched his brothers being gobbled up and said, I'm going to do better. 
I'm going to build my house of bricks. So he erected this immense brick house, and the big bad wolf came along, and he huffed and he puffed, and he didn't blow the house down, and in the end, the little pig gobbled up the big bad wolf. Maybe you don't know that version, but that's the original version. I looked it up. Google says it. It's true. It's an awful story. Why do you tell your children stories like that? Well, I tell you that story this morning because I want you to think about the song that the three little pigs sang when they saw the big bad wolf coming. Remember? The Disney version. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? That's the question for this morning. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf of death? There are lots of wolves in the world, lots of things to be afraid of, many terrible tyrants who enslave people. But our text says, there is one fear that keeps people in lifelong bondage, keeps them building houses of bricks and sticks and straw. And that's the fear of death. Now, the moral of the big bad wolf story is that you need to be careful when you build your life. You need to build it solidly so that you don't have to be afraid of death. That's not what this sermon is about. You're not going to hear blueprints for building death-free lives. I'm here this morning to tell you the good news that Jesus Christ has killed the big bad wolf. That's all you have to say? I preached that at a little chapel a couple of weeks ago. And I said that sentence, Jesus Christ has killed the big bad wolf, and a little five-year-old in the back said, good. He was right. Good. The gospel that we read this morning is that Jesus Christ has set us free from the fear of death by killing the big bad wolf. Now, the text is a little complicated. I don't know if while I was reading it, you're going, where is this going? Why is he reading this difficult stuff? I say that because you'll need to pay careful attention this morning. And if you do, maybe you'll be set free from the fear of death. I guess I ought to ask you before I go any further, if you are afraid of death. A lot of people say they're not. The comedian Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, through all the bluster and banter of the human race, our text says that there are people all over the world who all their lives are held in bondage to the fear of death. Theologian Joseph Sittler nails it when he says, at the bottom of every apprehension, every anxiety, every fear in our lives is the fear of death. To be human, says Sittler, is to fear death. It goes along with being a human being. 
And that's why we keep building these houses of, of straw and sticks and bricks. I mean, think about it. When you go into your exercise program so religiously like I do, when you follow a really healthy diet, when you take your meds and you visit your doctor for your annual physical, and then at the end of life we pour medications, drugs, radiation at the cancer, at the disease, aren't we trying to keep the big bad wolf from the door? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not why you do those things. Maybe, maybe you just want to look at 71 the way you did at 17, a vain hope. People will go to any length to keep the wolf from the door. I, I read recently about a man, believe it or not, it's a crazy idea, who is going to link his brain to a computer so that when his body dies, his mind will keep going forever and ever and ever. And you've all heard of cryonics, cryogenics. Is that the right word, cryogenics? The science of freezing. There are many people who plan on freezing their body. When they get to the point where their disease is about to take them, they're going to freeze their bodies so that science can advance while they're lying, they're frozen, and when science finally defeats that disease, they'll be thought out, brought back to life, and they'll live forever. That's the theory. Now, most of us don't go to anything like those lengths to defeat our fear of death. We do more ordinary things. There was an article in Time magazine recently about the way older people cope with their fear of death. There's a new branch of psychology called Terror Management Theory, TMT. And it teaches people how they can cope. Some of the coping mechanisms are these, constructive distraction. Many of you know exactly what that is. It means you keep busy doing important things so that you don't have to think about the fear of death. Some of that's what's behind our frantic busyness. There's generativity, which means that as people approach their final days, they begin to give away the things that they earned all their lives as a way of making the transition easier. And then, of course, the article in Time magazine said a lot of people just turn to religion to cope with their fear of death. Well, I could go on and on about how we do that, but I think you get the idea. And to be honest with you, not a one of them works. The big bad wolf is going to come along, and he's going to huff and puff, and he's going to blow your house down. No matter what you do, you're going to die. And that, for many people, is terrifying unless you know Jesus. I'm not talking this morning about turning to religion, about adopting some theological point of view. I'm talking about something that actually happened. I'm talking about an historical event that is so incredible, so miraculous that I wouldn't believe it except for the fact that the Bible talks about it so clearly.
Jesus killed the big bad wolf. And all God's people said, no, you didn't listen. And all God's people said, there you go. The little kid had it right. He did that by doing two seemingly impossible things. Now, you've heard these a thousand times if you've gone to this church for any time at all, but I want to underline them again so that you understand how impossible these things are. Jesus killed the big bad wolf by becoming just like us and by destroying the devil. Taking notes, those are two major points. He became just like us. The text says that in, in three different ways, increasing level of intensity. Verse 9, he was made a little lower than the angels. Verse 14, he shared in our humanity. Verse 17, he was made like his brothers and sisters in every way. Now, that doesn't mean very much if he already was sort of like us. If he was sort of a great big human being and then he was made a little lower. If he was like an angel who became a human. If he was a, a superhero with superpowers. Then it isn't such a big deal that he became just like us. But the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to make the point that he was not just a big man. He was not just an angel. He wasn't a superhero. He was, he was more than anything and everything in all of God's creation. The very first chapter, some of the first verses describe who Jesus was before he became just like us. Listen to these words. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Before he was that little baby, Jesus the Son of God kept the universe spinning in place. He was, you've heard this a million times, God. And he became a completely human being. You think about it, that's impossible. Well, here's something even crazier. He did that, says our text so that he could die. He couldn't die if he wasn't human. He had to be able to face the big bad wolf and be gobbled up. And by doing that, defeat death. Isn't that a crazy idea? Well, not, not so much. If you, if you think about what doctors do these days, how Doctors will put dead viruses into you to kill the live ones. Anybody get a flu shot last year? Exactly what happened to you? God used the death of his son to defeat death. And that's why the devil would have done absolutely anything to keep Jesus off the cross. The end of our text talks about 
the temptations of Jesus. You remember those three at the beginning? No sooner did Jesus come out into his public ministry than off in the desert, the devil said, you know, you don't want to go that way. You can go this way and do the very same thing. Turn these stones into bread. You don't have to go to the cross. And at the very end of Jesus' life, Satan tried one more time. Jesus said, I'm going to die. And his most outspoken disciple said, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus became just like us so that he could die the way we do. Sounds impossible. You tell that to a non-Christian, <laughs> she'll just shake her head at you. You must be nuts. But with God, all things are possible. And that brings me to the second impossibility. By dying, Jesus defeated the devil. Listen to verse 14 again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In the Gospel of Luke, the 11th chapter, Jesus told a story about what it takes to defeat a powerful man. He says you have to break into his house, take away his weapons, tie him up, and then rob him of all he has. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did when he died. He entered into the strong man's house, into the realm of death. He took away Satan's weapons, the weapons of deceit and the power of death, and he tied him up so that he can no longer do everything he wants to do. And then he robbed him of all the children of God the devil wanted to drag into hell. Our text says it very strongly. He destroyed. Did you see that word? He destroyed the devil. And you're thinking to yourself what I thought to myself when I read that. I don't think so. You look out at the world, the devil seems like he's doing pretty well, doesn't he? He's alive and well. Well, no, says the gospel, he is not. He's alive, but he's not at all well. He is in his death throes. If you need something to read later this afternoon, Revelation 12, the dragon rolling about in the throes of death. Read Revelation 20, where the dragon is bound. He can no longer deceive the nations, and he has lost the power of death. Jesus said in Revelation 1, I am the living one. I was dead and now am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now that's a little confusing. So I tell you an old, old example. You've heard it a dozen times, if you've heard it once, from World War II. The difference between D-Day and V-Day, 
high school students remember your history lessons, World War II, the Allies came on shore, the, the beaches of Normandy, attacked the Axis armies and pushed them back, and D-Day was the decisive battle in World War II. After D-Day, there was no longer any doubt about who was going to win World War II. But there was still a lot of fighting to go before V-Day, Victory Day. There was the great Battle of the Bulge in which the German forces pushed out, and it looked like they were going to win, but the decisive battle had been fought, and they were pushed back and pushed back until V-Day. When Jesus died on the cross, that was D-Day. The decisive victory over the devil and his hosts. After the cross, there was no longer any possibility that evil can win in this world. It can't happen. But there's an awful lot of fighting as Jesus pushes back the devil and his hosts one square inch at a time. V-Day is coming yet. When he's totally defeated. Through those two impossibles, Jesus became just like us, and he destroyed the devil. God has done the most wonderful thing for you and me. He has freed those who all their lives were subject enslaved in bondage to the fear of death. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, death is still real, but it is dead to you. You remember what Jesus said at the funeral of Lazarus, I'm the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though she dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. People who believe in Jesus will still experience death, but it can't hurt you. It's lost its sting, says 1 Corinthians 15. Like a big bumblebee buzzing around, dive-bombing you, frightening you, the stinger the pain, the hurt, is gone. Now, death is simply a passage into the presence of Jesus who holds the keys of death and Hades. He has locked the door of Hades to you forever. And with his key, he's opened the door to heaven and his presence so there's nothing to fear. Jesus has set us free from the fear of death. Well then, if that's true, why are we still afraid of death? Well, at the risk of being simplistic, let me suggest that it's because 
we're looking at the big bad wolf too much and Jesus not nearly enough. Verse 9 of our text puts it very well. The verse just before says, when you look out at the world, it doesn't look as though everything is subject to Jesus yet, and it doesn't, does it? It looks like the devil's in control a good deal of the time. It doesn't look like the world is subject to Jesus, but it says there in verse 9, but we see Jesus. Well, maybe we don't. And that's the problem. We're looking at the big bad wolf in all his forms, and we're not looking at Jesus enough. I suspect that's why Hebrews ends, chapter 12 at least, ends with that stirring call, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Or as an old hymn, one of my favorites puts it, when you're afraid, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know that song? Anybody know it? On vacation this winter, I, I heard a story preached by a Norwegian Lutheran pastor about a hospital chaplain friend of his who was doing rounds. He got to the room of a woman who the chart said was dying of lung cancer. He went into the room to bring her compassion and comfort, and she chased him out so fast. She was an embittered Catholic, a lapsed Catholic, excuse me, <clears throat> who said, I hate the church, get the blankety-blank out of here, and nearly physically threw him out of the room. As he slunk out, the charge nurse caught his sleeve, <coughs> over a glass of water. <coughs> and she said to him, now don't go run and get one, I'm almost done. She said to the, the chaplain, we give her two cigarettes a day at 3 o'clock. Why don't you come back then and bring her to her smoking area? Okay, I'll do that. So at 3 o'clock he came back, wheeled her out to the smoking lounge where she smoked and seethed and was completely silent, wouldn't say a word to him. He rolled her back in. The next day he came, did the same thing, and another day and another day. and. After a few days, she began to talk. She told him the story of her life, a hard life, a life filled with abuse and suffering, and now this awful disease taking away her life. She told her story, and then one day she said to this Protestant chaplain, could you get me a crucifix? You kids don't know what a crucifix is. It's a cross with the figure of Jesus still on it. She was a Catholic. That's the way Catholics have the cross. He said, well, I'm a Protestant, but okay. And he got her the crucifix. He brought it to her, and she, 
She clasped it to her breast. She kept it there every time he went to visit her. Finally, two days before she lapsed into a coma and died, she said, do you want to know why I wanted this crucifix? Yeah, I'd like to know, he said. She said, it reminds me that he knows. There's no place I will ever go that he hasn't already been. He knows. He's already been there. Our text puts it even stronger than that in verses 17 and 18. Not only has he been there, he is here right now, right in the middle of it all as the sympathetic high priest who has been tempted by the fear of death. He's not only at God's right hand, he's at yours. As you walk through the valley of death, things might get so dark that you can't see him anymore, but he still sees you. And he walks and walks until you get to death's door and you walk through. And there he'll be standing at the door of the Father's house saying those words of verse 13, Here am I and the children you have given me. Or to put it a little more simply, Here I am, Father, and all the children are with me and all the children are well. Amen. Holy Spirit, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth, including the wolf, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.